We're turning together this morning to the Sermon on the Mount again. Uh, a couple weeks ago with Dr. Mobley, we uh, looked at the Beatitudes. We had the privilege of walking through those passages that really gives us that beautiful description of the character of the Christian, the one who is truly blessed, uh, who is happy in communion with God and, and growing in these beautiful fruits. As we pick up this passage this morning, we're going to be focusing on verses 13 through 16, but I thought in terms of context, we'll start reading together at the beginning of the chapter. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together again briefly for a moment. Lord our God, we do pray that you would bless us by this your word. Lord, we look to you and we pray that you would nourish our souls by this, that you would strengthen, encourage Comfort us, convict us, Lord, work in us the ways that we each need. We pray that you would bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin the passage that we're looking at, verse 13, we see that Jesus now, in this Sermon on the Mount, gathering, has gathered his disciples to him. He's speaking to them. And he says in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. When Jesus says, You here, There are two things that should right away come to our minds. First, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, who he's quite recently called to himself. I think the previous chapter, Jesus has called these men from their various trades, their vocations that they had beforehand. He's called them to himself. Uh, This is recent. They're very new disciples, and we know that these are men who still have a long ways to go spiritually. In many ways, we don't know exactly when they were converted. Maybe they were 
in a sense, right? Old Testament believers, and uh, they were already converted, or, or the Lord is transforming them spiritually even as he calls them. Uh, but here they are, and you can think of someone like Peter. Uh, Peter will have plenty of ups and downs, much to learn yet. Uh, but the Lord, as he says, you here, you are the salt of the earth. It's these men. Uh, these men are not highly educated. Uh, they don't yet have the understanding of the scriptures that they will have in time. Uh, but they are the Lord's disciples. Uh, they are the ones he is bringing and drawing to himself. And he loves them. And he graciously has been speaking his word to them and is now continuing to do so. And we know with the disciples there were others as well who had come and were hearing the word of the Lord as he spoke to them. Well, secondly, uh, we know in in love our Lord Jesus has just described to them the, the marvelous realities of Christian character. Uh, the marvelous changes, the, the attributes that come about in somebody who's been brought out of darkness into light. And so that description that he's given in the Beatitudes, uh, our, our Lord says Christians uh, are the blessed ones in the world. Those who are poor in spirit are receiving the kingdom of heaven. A people who mourn sin and its effects are those who will be comforted. Those who are meek, they will inherit the earth. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he will satisfy them. And those who are merciful will receive mercy. The pure in heart will see God. The peacemakers who are named by God as his sons and daughters. And those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. And when they're reviled and spoken evil against, because they love and serve the Lord, they they should know they're going to receive great reward in heaven. And in their sufferings, they belong to this long line of those who by grace were made faithful and kept faithful to the Lord, just like the prophets of old. That's where Jesus has ended in verse 12. And so this then is the context for Jesus saying now to these disciples, you You are the salt of the earth. Well, salt then, uh, just as now, was incredibly important. It's an important commodity. Uh, Salt is essential for human life, for health. Our bodies need salt to function. And we've been created in a way that we actually, uh, not only do we need salt, we need sodium in our bodies, but we've been created to enjoy the taste of saltiness. In, in some of our foods, in particular foods. Uh, but even more importantly then in Jesus' day and in so many of the centuries after Jesus' day, uh, salt was very important because it was an important additive, a, a preservative for foods. No refrigeration in the days of our Lord. And so salting meats combined with drying them was a remarkably effective way to preserve food, to, to diminish the microbes that would cause rot and decay. And it's really especially in this latter sense that as our Lord says to his disciples, to his people who's gathering to himself here as he ministers his word to them, he's saying to his disciples, to us as his people, you, you are the salt of the earth. 
One writer puts it this way, the disciples of the Lord are to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent. The last part of that sentence describes the world well, as it was in Judea at the time of our Lord, as it was in the Roman Empire, full of corruption, full of decay, full of brokenness, sin, and misery. And the same is true of our world today, isn't it? We grieve as we see decay in our society, as we see the brokenness, the wreckage caused by sin, as we see the effects of our own sin and the harm that our own sin causes and the way it dishonors the Lord but also causes damage around us. But the remarkable and encouraging reality here is that our Lord then is telling us this, the beautiful, gracious, supernaturally worked reality of new life in Christ in us, in you as his disciples, is having an impact. That transforming work of the Lord in our lives as we begin to grow in grace with all the ups and downs along the way, but as the Lord is sanctifying us and changing us, that also has an impact beyond ourselves. As we live by repentance and faith and new obedience, there's a, there's a ripple effect. There's an impact beyond ourselves that will counter, counteract evil and decay around us in the world. John Brown, an old Scottish Presbyterian commentator, wrote a sermon on this passage, and in part of it he said this, In these figurative words, our Lord announces a wonderful truth, the full impact of which is even yet, after many centuries, only partially seen, so that through the instrumentality of his disciples, then so few in number, so humble in circumstances, so utterly destitute of the force physically or politically by which changes in the world usually come about, through them remarkable changes were to take place in a dark and fallen world. Decay would be slowed. The world would be more safe and peaceful. Many would be impacted convicted, restored to life in communion with God, their spiritually destructive lives stopped, their spiritual ruin prevented. You are the salt of the earth is equivalent to you are the instrumental means of improving the world and saving its inhabitants. By your instrumentality, the ignorant become enlightened. Guilty are brought to seek pardon. The depraved are to be made holy. The unprofitable are to be made useful. The miserable will be made happy. You are to be the grand instrumental means by which God is to renovate the earth to create a regenerate society to save men. You are 
the salt of the earth. I don't know, growing up, I can remember uh, my father speaking of somebody as, you know, being the salt of the earth. That was this, this older man who lived his days as a farmer, just a godly man, his kind of man you say he'd give you the shirt off his back, uh, just served the Lord humbly, loved his family, uh, spoke to people at the local restaurant where we'd have lunch once a week. Uh, it was just a, a just an ordinary Christian, but one who uh, was in the Word, was in prayer, not a perfect man, but the salt of the earth, a kind of language we're familiar with. Well, our Lord Jesus Christ is saying, you are the salt of the earth. And that's because of his supernatural grace. We know we're not the salt of the earth just in and of ourselves. But his great love and mercy at work in us makes us salty, Uh, gives us this kind of influence that will be a blessing uh, to those around us, a positive influence spiritually to those around us in our families, in our workplace, in our community. Now, our Lord doesn't stop with saying, you are the salt of the earth, but he explains, continuing to use this figure of speech, the importance of us not losing our Christian saltiness. Again, undoubtedly a great part of what he intends us to understand about Christian saltiness is what he's just described in the Christian character he's shown us in the Beatitudes. So we have to, you know, losing our saltiness, you are the salt of the earth. What does it look like to be salty as a Christian in a dark world? It looks like, by God's grace, growing in the character of the Beatitudes, living that out by His grace and mercy, through His strength that He supplies, through the forgiveness that He grants. Uh, that, that reality comes, that heart and character comes as we use just the ordinary means of grace. You know, being here this morning, coming to worship the Lord together, being under His Word, uh, reading our Bibles in the morning or in the evening, just those, those first ordinary things of Christian life that are simple, that could be a real battle uh, spiritually, but it's through those means of grace that the Lord shapes us through His Word and by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so if we are going to be salt, if we're going to be functioning, blessed salt in this world, we need to have the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly. That's what we need to be salty. And it's so good and beautiful when this is true, when this is increasingly true in our lives. We see our Lord here, though, in verse 13, really soberly exhorts at the disciples, his hearers on the Sermon on the Mount, and us, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Well, I, I wondered, maybe you have wondered when I read this passage as I was preparing, how can salt lose its saltiness? Is is that really possible for salt to lose its saltiness? Well, I read a few different commentators, and apparently at this time, in the Roman Empire, a lot of the salt that was sold was actually in part mineral dust. 
the really salt deposits, whether it was along the, the Dead Sea or other places where they would harvest, gather their salt. There were other things mixed in. And the actual salt was what was water-soluble. And it, and it could be washed out, and you could have something that to people still looked like salt, but it had lost its saltiness. And that seems to be what Jesus is speaking of. That would be common in that day, that, that you might uh, you know, have your shaker on your table, and it looked like good salt, and you would shake it out, and, and it really wouldn't be very salty. There'd be not much saltiness to it. Well, the, the figure of speech that Jesus uses is he's challenging us and, and reminding us that we can, as Christians, diminish in our saltiness. I think we've all experienced this in our lives. I know I have. Uh, times when we, uh, we start to realize by the grace of God as he convicts us that we've sort of been running on empty spiritually, that we've, uh, we've become dull spiritually, uh, we've, uh, we're, we're no longer really being a, a positive spiritual influence. Uh, we've become a, a hindrance to those around us. How does that happen as, as we think about that? Or you think a particular day in your week and things did not go well, uh, the way you responded to family members or uh, what rose up in your heart through your day at work uh, was not God-glorifying. And, and sometimes if we think back, uh, maybe we rushed into our day. Uh, we had so many things on the agenda that, that we skipped over or, or, or maybe just rushed through being in the Word or maybe weren't in prayer at the beginning of our day. We, we actually were losing communion with God and, and going on empty, and, and, and our priorities spiritually were being eroded, and, and our saltiness that we ought to have with the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly, wasn't there. It began to diminish. And uh, that's a a sad thing. That's a sober thing. Uh, We find out perhaps that we're not the blessing we could be in our marriage, in our family life. Uh, We can begin to slide to the point where we really start to be more contributors to spiritual decay rather than preserving blessing, strengthening, uh, being a blessed influence. And we can diminish in saltiness not only through things that crowd out our time, you could say through sins of omission, uh, but also we can lose our saltiness if we, if we allow things to come into our lives that are, that are just contrary to God's Word. And we grieve His Spirit because we were pursuing some kind of sin. It could be entertainment choices that are contrary to His Word, or giving space to sinful desires, the pursuit of sin in our lives. And then though we bear the name of Christ, uh, people know, you know, yeah, he, he, goes to, he goes to Second Presbyterian Church, or she does, or yeah, they're, they're Christians, but it's just the saltiness has dissipated in our lives. And we're not bearing the influence of Christ into the places He put us. Well, how much better? And this is why our Lord Jesus says this. His his warnings are loving. He knows our hearts. He's the great physician. He knows His sheep. And so He reminds us 
uh, in his word here. You know, when the saltiness is gone, how will it be restored? It's not good for anything but to be thrown out. And, and if we honestly think about the times when we have been living in those ways, we haven't been good. We haven't been good for others. Um, the, the, what has come out of our lives is something that should be thrown out. Well, how can it be restored? How can we be restored? Well, the answer is in the very one who is speaking the Sermon on the Mount to us. It's by coming to him and repentance and faith. It's through his means of grace. And, and ultimately, when we see in the rearview mirror often, we know who is the one who brings us back to saltiness. It's the Lord. As he uses his word, as he uses other people, as he calls us back, just as Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. What a wonder in the great grace of God that we can not only be forgiven for our sin, have that washed away and cleansed, removed from us, but as well we can be renewed and revived in His service so that we become again salty and grow in the saltiness to His glory. Well, secondly, in this passage... Uh, we see that Jesus describes the disciples with another statement. You are the light of the world. This is 5, verse 14. John in his gospel, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes Christ as the light, the light who shines in the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome his light. We would turn to the beginning of the book of Hebrews. There, our Lord Jesus Christ is described as the radiance of the glory of God, echoing the language of the brightness of the glory of God revealed in the Old Testament. Now, the Shekinah glory, the cloud of glory, you think of the tabernacle, of God leading the people out in the Exodus. Uh, the glory and brightness of his presence. Uh, we think of the New Testament description of God the Father as the Father of lights. We go back to the beginning, creation, and there's darkness, and God said, let there be light. God being the one who is the source of light, uh, the one who is a pure brightness and glory. In John eight twelve, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. And when we take all of that together, this is quite an astounding statement. Jesus, he's just called these disciples. We read in the Gospels that, that Jesus knew what was in the heart of man, and he didn't entrust himself to any man. He knew the reality of sin. And yet here he looks at these ones who he's called with all their weakness and sinfulness. He knows what he is doing as their great Savior. And he says, you are the light of the world. He is the light of the world. But now you too are going to become the light of the world. It makes what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, when we think of the reality of who God is, it's the source of all light and truth, all the more amazing. 
How can it be true? Again, it's only by his great goodness, his great love, in his salvation for us. Uh, We're reminded here again, Jesus not only delights to see that we are forgiven, but he wants to bring us into this great work of salvation that he is doing so that we, in all of our different vocations and places, become instruments in his hands, means for great blessing to others. Ephesians 5.8, the Apostle Paul, bearing the word of Christ, puts it this way, you are light in the Lord. Uh, One commentator, John Stott, commenting on this, says, Christ is the light of the world, but by derivation, we too, shining with the light of Christ, shine in the world like stars in the night sky. And this is true, isn't it? Maybe sometimes we don't feel like it ourselves, but I think we can think of others at times in our lives, uh, both maybe the context of darkness, by contrast, of sin where there is no light, there is no peace, there is no communion with God. But then we can also think of people the Lord brought into our lives who really were a means that he used to shine his light to us bringing his word to us, encouraging us, comforting us, maybe challenging us at some point in our lives. Well, what this light is now in us is what Jesus clarifies uh, a little later here in the passage, jumping a little bit forward. Uh, He says that, that it's our good works. So you are the light of the world. And he says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. Now, these good works, uh, this is how we're light. This is how we're shining, and it's, it's what we do, including what we say, actions and words. Now, we see in the Scriptures uh, the imagery of light in the Bible. It's always connected with truth. Uh, it's connected with activity. Light itself, it's an incredible blessing. The light God has created brings warmth, it brings growth, it brings health. A light in the Scriptures enables us to see. It enables us to direct our paths, to navigate through things. Light enables us to work and to play. In the light, we can see clearly. And the spiritual light of Christ, the light of his word and his grace and truth, coming through us in the ordinary stuff of life that we do. As we come into his new life, or the beginnings of the new creation in a fallen world, we're being changed, and that light then is shining in the things that we do. Again, not perfectly, times we feel more like we're a tinted window, uh, tinted by sin, and there's not a lot of light getting through. Uh, But yet, by the grace of God, light is shining. And as He sanctifies us, that that light shines as we're saved and sanctified. And 
that light brings blessing. It's an incredible encouragement to each other. You know, just as we stand around in fellowship after a service, we have conversation with each other. There is light shining from one person to another. And that light helps each other. It strengthens each other as we talk, as we listen sympathetically, uh, as we've maybe quietly been praying for people during the week. And I don't necessarily tell everybody that we have, but because we've been praying for people, our hearts are more tender to them. And there's something about uh, just our conversation or our smile or just the sympathy quietly that we have and the light of Christ shining through us, and it's beautiful. And it brings that warmth and life and encouragement and blessing. Well, that light also brings conviction, conviction of sin. I can remember in my teenage years, I wasn't walking with the Lord as I should have been. And and there were some, my parents, by the grace of God, were Christians, and uh, I felt the light of their presence at times. But there was also, I can remember, an elder in the church who took an interest in some of the teenage young men and would ask them how they were doing and sometimes ask a few probing questions. And I was kind of scared of that. And the reason I was scared of it was because there was darkness versus light shining. And it was actually convicting. It was loving. He wasn't overbearing or anything, but maybe a little afraid. And it was, it was good. It was the grace of God. And so the light, we know in the Scripture, also exposes the darkness for what it really is. Just as salt has this effect, uh, and salt can be irritating, uh, you know, uh, in a cut or in a wound. So the light uh, to the darkness can be irritating. And Jesus has just spoken about the fact that the prophets who were before you were persecuted. Well, why were they persecuted? Because they were a salt and a light in a dark world. And that light and salt, well, it brings life to those who the Lord is saving. But it also brings a conviction, and it displays the presence of God. It's a reminder of who God is uh, in the midst of this world. Well, in the second part of verses 14 and 15, as you look with me to the passage here, uh, Jesus now gives some exhortation. He's told us, you are the light of the world. This is what you are. And now some exhortation. Well, how should we live in light of that? Um, Well, he says, first of all, perhaps really knowing our heart tendency to fear men and knowing that uh, he wants us to be a light for the good and blessing of many, He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. This is a jumping, it's a different metaphor he's using here. Uh, I think no doubt to those who were sitting around Jesus, the disciples, when they think of a city on a hill, what are they going to be thinking of? Mount Zion. They'll be thinking of uh, Jerusalem, the city set on a hill. Uh, Mount Zion was to be the place of the presence of the knowledge of God in the Old Testament, the place of the worship of God uh, among the nations. So the place where Jesus was coming for his ministry and he publicly ministered in the temple. He was that great light that had come into the darkness. 
of this world for the salvation of sinners. Jesus is saying here, uh, as I continue this great work, as you are a light, you are to be this city on a hill. You, my church, are going to, you are the new Jerusalem light. Uh, You're not to be tucked away, hidden away, but to be open and public. Uh, And there would be a sense with the fear of men, I think we probably, maybe some of you don't feel it, but I certainly have. You know, at times in our culture, you think, well, maybe it would be nice to to build a house somewhere in the mountains and uh, hide away and have a nice garden and just have Christian friends over and ignore what's happening in the world and retreat. Having a monastery sounds kind of appealing in some ways. See a lot of wickedness around us. We'd like to retreat. But Jesus says, Oh, my sons and daughters, my children, you are the light of the world. You need to be that light openly and publicly. This is how I brought you to myself through the light that has been born. And I think one of the things we, we call our worship services, they're public worship services. It's not a private gathering. It's a public worship service. Why is it a public worship service? Well, it's not only us. We want as many people from Greenville to come and join us as possible. And we can certainly we can grow in this, in this desire and passion to His glory, that we'd be an open and bright light. Verse 15, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Uh, The light of Christ in and through us and through us together as we worship. One of the most uh, wonderful realities, I think, of this earth is that the Lord's people come together and we sing His praises. God brings us into His presence and we hear His Word. Uh, That is such a powerful place to be. I'm sure many of us could testify to how the Lord used worship services spiritually in our lives, maybe saved us. Think of Dr. Phillips being saved, so coming into a worship service. Uh, This is the Lord's desire, that through this light, uh, he would bring light and life to others. The gospel would be advanced to every tribe and tongue and nation. Why do we support church plants and missions? The light of the gospel that we might be a light. Well, this is what our Lord tells us then in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Where does this start? It just starts simply at home, just the ordinary stuff of life. We can go home, we can pray, Lord, Lord, help me to be more of a salt, more of a light, just where you've put me. Maybe it's with my grandkids. Uh, Maybe it's a family member who's going astray. Uh, In love, praying for wisdom, to have some good words to say. Uh, Together with the saints, with our neighbor across the fence. Maybe he doesn't go to church anywhere. Maybe it was somebody at a grocery store checkout, just in a moment of conversation. Let's pray 
And that these words that the Lord Jesus says to his disciples to us, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That their blindness would also be removed and they would come to see God. A God who has created all things. A God who is real. A God in whose presence we live and move and have our being. Well, let's pray together as we close. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the riches of your word. We thank you for the great love and grace and mercy that you've shown us through your dear Son. We thank you that uh, you have given us your living and enduring word, your word that abides forever. We pray that you would work in all of us together, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that we would grow in these things. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have told us that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Oh, Lord, we confess uh, so often we realize that we're really not like that in ourselves. We pray that you would cleanse us from all of our sin uh, that makes us weak. But, Lord, we look to you, and we know that you delight to hear and to answer the prayers of your children. We ask according to your word. And so, Lord, we ask, Lord, make us more and more the salt of the earth. Make us more and more the light of the world, that your name would be glorified, that sinners would be saved, and that your people would be loved and encouraged on this earthly pilgrimage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.